Good morning, everybody. It's nice to be here uh, on a Sunday to gather together. Today we're going to study the beginning of the story of Saul's conversion. Okay, And obviously that's a very dramatic event, and it's also very central to the biblical message because this enemy of Christians who hated Christ and Christians becomes one of the premier apostles who God used to write much of the New Testament. So this is very, very important. And let's begin with prayer. Thank you, dear Lord, for allowing us the joy of looking into what you've said in your word and that we may understand and grow in our love for you and appreciation for what you've done for us through the gospel. Help us to carefully study and understand what implications are there for us to believe and to obey from what you've said in your word. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, talking about persecution, we now come to a passage where one of the most violent and virulent haters of Christians, that would be Saul of Tarsus, meets the one he's persecuting. And it's an amazing, amazing story. I'm going to read from the Holman Christian Standard Bible, Acts 9, 1 through 9. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? He said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. Then Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. And he was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. So here Saul, wanting to do as much harm to the Christian church as he possibly could, is confronted on the way to Damascus. I wanted to quote from one of the better resources I have, I mentioned before Tannehill, the narrative unity of Luke Acts, 
volume one and two. I was told about this by a professor at seminary in the 90s, and I immediately bought these two books, and now I'm reading them through like the second or third time. One thing about Tannehill, he's a great reader. He sees how Luke tells what he's telling, and and it's just been so helpful to me. And I thank God for for uh, Robert Tannehill. Let me quote him so you get an idea just of what he he does and how he understands these things. Quote: We hear of divine initiative in the lives of Philip and Saul, pointing toward the Gentile mission. Before we hear of Peter's encounter with Cornelius, preparatory steps toward the mission to the Gentiles and the end of the earth are taken before Acts 10. And these initiatives do not take place through Peter. We also note that Saul begins his preaching mission in Damascus without prior approval of the apostles. Just as Philip launches a mission in Samaria of which the apostles hear only later. We saw that before, Acts 8, 14. Jerusalem leaders, says Daniel, have a role in verifying these missions. They are not their initiatives, initiators or directors. Very interesting. This is what I was telling you about Tannehill. He's a great reader. Now just take what is a clear fact just from reading Acts and compare it to the claims of the Roman Catholic so-called church. Oh, Peter is the head. Peter did everything. Well, here we already see Acts 1.8 being fulfilled concerning the end of the earth with Philip taking the gospel to the Ethiopian who goes, as we saw, to the end of the earth. And now the gospel is going to go to Damascus through Saul who hates Christ. Of course, he won't by the time he's preaching in Damascus. And the household of Cornelius happens in chapter 10, and that does happen through Peter. But what Tannehill says, I have to agree with. This notion that the church is a pyramid with Peter at the top is a total fabrication. And it has nothing to do with what the Bible actually says. God is using unexpected people. Philip was not an apostle. Paul hated the church. He was Saul. But God is bringing forth his plan through people that we maybe wouldn't have thought. See, we think of some pyramid and this pope with all of his garbs. Well, you and I don't think that way. But a lot of people do. None of that was ever God's idea. Rome is a perversion, and it's not a Christian church. Okay? A lot of you here used to be under the bondage of Rome, but you've escaped. And that's what it is, escape. When you get out of Rome, you escape. Is that right, Dan? Well, I thank God for each of you. But we need to just read. Read for what it says, because what it does say 
and what we do learn is way better than the traditions of man. And we know that God can use people that you wouldn't expect. He might even use you and I. That uh, letter we read from Kenya, a dear brother who risked his life week after week to preach the gospel where the Mohammedans are killing people for being Christian. And so we need to learn. Now, Paul characterized his message in Acts 20, 21 as testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to verse 1 now. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So he goes to the high priest. Now remember, he's a zealot. He's a zealot for pharisaical Judaism. Saul had been introduced in Acts seven fifty-eight. So we, we already have seen Saul. In, starting in Acts 7.58. Acts 7.58. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. This is Stephen. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So one of the things Luke does in his brilliant writing is he'll introduce somebody. And if you're just reading for the first time, you don't know exactly why. Saul, okay, but later he becomes a key person. He becomes very important in the narrative. Then it says in Acts 8.3 that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He wanted people dead, and we'll read about that. In fact, I'm doing all the talking here. I have a voice today. Thank you for your prayers. But I don't want to take over all the talking here. Uh, Where's the mic at this point? Being how you have it, Eric, er, Eric the Elder. The old. We got Eric the Old. Eric the Young, Eric the Pastor. Okay, could you read Acts 22.4? Okay, uh, this is Acts 22.4, NASB. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. To the death. And that's Paul. He wanted Christians dead. To this very day, Christians are being martyred for the crime of believing in Jesus Christ. Why is it like that? Because of satanic hatred for God. Try to destroy all the Christians. Or you can be a Christian as long as you don't confess Christ. If you're a Christian who says, well, why don't we, let's just have one world church and one world religion, and it's all going to be one big pot of porridge, and we're not going to make any 
distinctive claims about what we believe, well, then you're fine. Everybody will like you. But if you confess Christ, then you have the Saul, Saul's of the world wanting you dead. Now, we saw in, here's another one. Let me read this one, Acts 7, 51 to 54. This is what happened just from Stephen, who wasn't an apostle, but he preached Christ. He was a deacon. Here's Stephen preaching. Acts 7, 51 to 54. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered, says Stephen. Verse 53, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and ground their teeth. They were so angry, they stoned him. They want anybody who preaches Christ dead. Now, um, one, one of my really good commentaries on Acts was written by a brother by the name of uh, David Peterson. We've read him on sanctification. He's a good theologian. But listen to how he sees this, and I think it's very interesting. It says Peterson, quote, observing that there are three conversion stories in Acts, Acts 8 through 10, the Ethiopian Saul and Cornelius, we may note that Saul lacks the virtues of either the Ethiopian eunuch or Cornelius. What's the difference? What was the Ethiopian like? He was reading the Bible. He wanted to know what it meant. He was sitting out there reading Isaiah 53, which is Messianic. Who can help me? Well, the Lord sensed. Philip out there to help him. And then later at Cornelius, he was a God-fearing Gentile. And we'll read that when we get to Acts 10. Another amazing story. Peter sees a vision. There's a double vision, sort of like there is here with Saul before we get done. And God brings it all together, and the gospel's preached. But there was a God-fearing Gentile who did want to learn. Saul isn't like either of those. He's an enemy. He doesn't want to hear anything. He wants Christians imprisoned and dead. Quoting Peterson again, he's not presented as, this is uh, Saul, not presented as searching the scriptures to understand the suffering servant. He has already formed an assessment of Jesus and his followers, nor is he presented as a pious follower of God. Rather, through various means, Luke characterizes Saul as God's enemy, stiff-necked, resisting the Holy Spirit, like all the other opponents of Stephen. He's murderous in his intentions against the Lord's disciples and is set like Herod and Pontius Pilate against the Lord and his anointed one. He experiences a blinding like that of Elimus, was later described as an enemy of of everything that is right. 
who perverts the ways of the Lord. Finally, Luke demonstrates Saul's changed relationship with God by showing how he becomes totally immersed in and advocates the cause of the community which he formerly sought to destroy. I've been, I'm already worked, got most of my material together for last Sunday. And what we'll see is it's interesting that Ananias, who's the one that's going to pray for Saul, God had to convince him that it was safe to do it. Well, this guy wants to kill us. Why should I go pray for him? So they'd hurt his reputation, and it wasn't a good one. Now, I'm sharing some of this with you. Maybe there's somebody now here like I was when I was 20, 21 years old. Let me just tell you a little story about that. One of the reasons I share details with you and not just the surface. I tell you the results of the study and I give you details. When I was a young Christian, I was in Bible college up here in Minneapolis. My favorite teacher was uh, the Reverend Wesley Smith. And I remember when we were studying the Acts, we used to use the term brother and sister back then. Brother Smith was telling about part of Jewish theology that they called Phinehas theology. And some uh, people who studied Acts think that that was what motivated Paul. Now, does anybody remember the Phinehas story? You remember it? Okay, tell it. You have to say, you got a mic. (laughs) Tell us what happened. There's a plague going on in Israel due to rampant idolatry and the the fornication, and the fornication that was going on, and so Phinehas and his zeal thrust. Was it a, a tent? There was a, a tent. Yeah, there was a, a Israelite committing immorality with a pagan woman. But was it a tent peg that he threw? Uh, you know, I, he thrust. Well, let me see. Go. Well, he thrust. <laughs> he thrust anyway. A he thrust sharp object. T- a staff through the two of them. Through the two of them and stopped the plague. That was the idea. And so to be zealous would be to have Phinehas like zealous. Yeah, the plague stopped. So Reverend Smith said Saul could very well have been thinking Israel is under Rome and under a plague. We don't have our sovereignty. And the reason is God is angry with people like these Christians. And if I kill the Christians, I'll stop the plague. That would be the Phinehas idea. I heard that in 1971, and I never forgot it. And now I'm studying this same pericope, and I'm reading Dr. Longenecker, and here's what he says. More important, however, in the days when the rabbis viewed the keeping of the Mosaic Law as vitally important prerequisite for the coming of the Messianic Age, Paul could validate his actions against the Christians by reference to such godly precedents as one, Moses slaying of the immoral Israelites at Baal Peor, Numbers 25, 1 through 5, two, Phinehas's slaying of the Israelite man and Midianite woman in the plains of Moab, Numbers 25, 6 through 15, and three, the actions of Matthias and the Hasidim 
and rooting out the apostasy among the people. Now, this was in Maccabees, so it wasn't in the Bible, intertestamental. So, perhaps, says Long and Decker, even the divine commendation of Phinehas's actions in Numbers 25, 11 through 13. And Bob, Phinehas used a spear. That's what he used. A spear? A spear, yeah. It rang, it rang in his ears. So I thought, wow, how many years ago was 1971? A lot. <laughs> and here I am studying this, and I read the same thing one of my teachers taught me back then. They didn't have the resources then that we have now. The thing I loved about Reverend Smith, he knew all of these connections and how to read. He taught John using the Hebraic background and what was going on. And I don't know where he had this stuff. It was so great. I remember taking my little reel-to-reel tape recorder and a little cheesy mic. It's sitting in the front row of Reverend Smith's class in the recording because back then it wasn't so easy to record anything. And I took that home and I had reel-to-reel and I put them on there so I could hear it again. And I'm thinking as I'm studying, maybe some young man or woman hears me and learns something useful like I did. That would be a nice outcome. I'm not saying I'm as good a teacher as Reverend Smith was, but I can do my best for who I am. Acts 9.2 And requested letters from him, that is the high priest, to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women... Notice he was even going to persecute the women who belonged to the way. First time Christians are called that. He might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So we have here Saul so hostile to Christians and Christ that he's willing to travel 135 miles to try to find them. Now, that's a long ways to go. Right? That's a long journey. They didn't have uh, cars back then. Yeah. It's like Duluth. Is that how far that is? Let's go to Duluth and find some Christians so we can kill them. The high priest here, as I say in my notes, probably was Caiaphas. And here, interestingly, Christians are called Hahadas, the road, the way. This may be a play on words here. Earlier in the Gospels, there are a number of times where it says that somebody was touched by Jesus and followed him in the way. Hahadas, using this. Followed Jesus. Yeah, the way, the truth, and the life. John 14. And so here they're called. The Way. Of course, now there's a cult called The Way International, so we can't use that term anymore. Paul likely thought he was righteous in these actions. Bill Fisher, would you like to read John 16, 2? When you get the mic. Uh, They will make you outcasts from the synagogue but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service 
to God. Everyone who kills you thinks he's offering service to God. Jesus warned his followers that that would happen. This morning, if you got here late, we read an email from a dear brother who's a pastor and telling us that El Shabaab killed 12 Christians and they think they're doing service to God. So this is still going on. This isn't new. This is real for people that we're in contact with. Yes, Eric. Uh, Not to get off on a tangent, but as you were talking earlier, um, you know, about Paul going to kill uh, followers of the way. And uh, there's something I read long ago. It just keeps haunting me. And it is uh, 1 John uh, verse three or chapter 3, verse 17. As I look at what's going on in the world today, and actually always, and I'll just read it if I could. Please, please. And it, it, uh, this is the Apostle John, of course. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And, you know, a lot of people twist these things and talk about social gospel and all of that. You know, but when we see Christians being persecuted, the, 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 the church writ large, I like to use that term. I mean, we all have just a little bit of influence, not much. But those people in the larger church, what are they doing, you know? We see Lutheran Social Services that has come out with a, uh, uh, like a, it's a small group uh, study on my neighbor is a Muslim, you know, and and if you read it, it's a uh, Todd Green, and and I just I just can't believe what they've what they've read or what they've written, you know. The reality is we they have don't Christians, believe in conversion. We they? we have we have Christians being killed and persecuted, and you know we can't do much. We can go and visit with Muslims and try to convert them to Jesus Christ, but uh, the church itself. And so I didn't mean to go off on a tangent, well, but it just the, keeps it haunting It makes me. a good point, though. Christianity, we're seeing here the conversion of Saul. Christianity is based on conversion, not social actions. It's not a, just a social subgroup within the bigger world. Christians are converted and taken out of one sphere, the authority of darkness, Colossians 1, 13 and 14, and transferred into another, the kingdom of his beloved son. And that's a radical thing. In my case, that's how I was converted. I probably told you the story, but it comes to my mind now. In the year 2000, I went down for all-school class reunion my hometown of Sheldon, Iowa. And they had a big picnic for all of the classes. Include mine, by the way, class of 1969. I'm not old, am I? <laughs> Anyhow, we're at this picnic with, you know, a bunch of people and family and Diane and I and what have you, here comes this big, strapping farm boy, big guy. He's not a boy, he's a man. 
And he says, he comes up to me, he says, Bob. I said, hi, I don't know that I know who you are. And he introduced himself. He says, I've come to apologize to you. I said, about what? He said, I worked at the Big Four when you became a Christian, and I was one of the men there making fun of you and mocking you for being a Christian. And I want you to know I'm a Christian too now. And I'm glad I saw you so I can tell you this. And uh, you don't know what God's going to do. Do you think any of the Christians at that time ever thought Saul would be safe? No. He was the most uh, violent hater of Christians that there was. Now, how is it that there's Christians in Damascus, 135 miles from Jerusalem, this early in church history? There's two things that I've read about. I'll just summarize for you. You remember at the day of Pentecost, there were all different kind of people there from all over, right? And many, not all, but many were converted from all over. So there could have been some who were there at Pentecost from Damascus who went back with the gospel. Another thing that I've read is that since there was such violent persecution going on, as we saw with Stephen, some may have fled there later to get away from the persecution. They may have fled to Damascus. So whether, however the gospel got there, it was in Damascus, and there were Christians there. And Saul wanted to go make sure that stopped right here and right now. Before we get done with Acts 9, Paul will be in Damascus preaching Christ. One thing's for sure, we don't know who God's going to save, do we? Verse 3, as he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Now, in the Bible, Old and New Testament, light is often linked with God's presence and nature. So I have a bunch of verses. Why don't we look some of those up? Um, who wants to? Peter, you look like a good reader. Isaiah 49, 6. Joel, do you want to be looking one up? Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 6 then for you. Isaiah 49, 6. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Right. That's a messianic prophecy that messianic salvation would go to Gentiles. There's Joel. Tim, you want to look one up? You're not safe in the front row, you know. We can get the mic up here. How about John twelve forty six for for you, Joel, uh, two Corinthians four six. 
2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Right. So in, in that passage, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, conversion is described as God shining his light into our hearts. And as he does, we have the knowledge of God and his glory in the person of Christ. That's what conversion is like, going from darkness to light. We see that later in Acts, for example, in Acts 26, 18. Now, if we could bring the mic up here to Tim, we'll do John 12, 46. John 12, 46. I have come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me should not remain in darkness. Okay. So Christ is the light of the world. That certainly links us back to Isaiah 49, 6. Eric, with your mic there, could you read 1 Timothy six sixteen and then comment on it? Sure, sure. It's an important theological passage about the nature of God. Yeah. 1 Timothy 6.16 says, Who alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see? To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Okay. Now, I want to know. It says, Who alone has immortality? Yeah. Now, help us understand the communicable and incommunicable attributes of God. Yeah. How it is that God alone has immortality, but that sinners can receive, how do we resolve that one? Yeah, amen. Um, and thank you, Bob, for bringing up the communicable and incommunicable attributes last week and weeks prior. Um, the communicable attributes, of course, are things that God communicates with us, things like love, uh, things like holiness. We can be holy, certainly not to the degree that he is now, but the incommunicable attributes are things that God alone has. One of them would be the fact that he's always existed. He is a non-contingent being. In other words, he doesn't have to rely upon anything outside of himself to exist. He always has. And so when we're called to immortality through the faith in the gospel, realize our immortality started at a point in time. So very technically, we have everlasting life. It's life that began at a point in time, and it extends forever. It never ends. But God has always existed. He's never had a point where he came into existence. And so that's why he alone is immortal in that sense, um, completely non-contingent yeah. being. So. so there in one verse you have... A lot of doctrine. You have a lot of doctrine. Yeah. And we emphasize doctrine here at Gospel of Grace Fellowship. And I have believed for many years, many, many years, that we have to teach doctrine to the flock. It's not right that some certain people go off and learn doctrine, but then when it comes time to teach the church, we give them something else. It's not right. Today I remember to bring emails. Here's one I just got, I think yesterday, from a CIC reader. So I want to show you why we teach doctrine, why you need to learn communicable and incommunicable and the nature of God, the nature of conversion, 
the nature of light and darkness and that we don't just give you the Reader's Digest version. All right? Here's from a reader. Brian brought this up a few weeks ago, but let me quote a, a CIC reader. Hi, Bob. Though I thought I would give you an update on our situation. This is somebody I had replied to. Further investigation on my part showed me that the church we had belonged to was purpose-driven to the core. Looking back at a range of 62 previous sermons in the last two years, I found 49 definite matches with sermons on Saddleback Sermon Library and Pastors.com. Whereas I had thought that some of the message had been the pastor's own work, I'm not sure how many, if any, were actually his own work. That realization, coupled with a lack of acknowledgement of the source, was a part of my disappointment. But the primary concern was the fact that the message messages consistently preached were purpose-driven. Now, I wrote a book about that. My wife and I resigned our membership last week. We found a church, and we visited last weekend. It was the first time in a half a year that I felt totally comfortable sitting in church. And I now know the joy of listening to expository preaching. Can you imagine that many? And here we do all of this research, and we could just go to pastors.com. Uh, yeah, well, we would have to fish every day. Go ahead. I'm going to just um, share another encouragement. We had a, a woman, um, and she posts uh, comments every once in a while on our Facebook page. Her name is Sandra. Hi, Sandra, if you're listening. Um, but she wrote a note yesterday, and I just want to read it because this is... Um, I think an encouragement to the whole church at Gospel of Grace Fellowship. I love you guys. I watch regularly. I wished I lived in your area so I could attend such a wonderful church and get the amazing teaching that you share on YouTube. And then she has a question for us. But it, it does impact lives all over um, our nation. And, and we're just so grateful for these brothers and sisters who yeah. love solid doctrinal teaching. Thank you. I always reply to the emails from the CIC readers, I considered it sort of a little scattered flock, and I love these dear people. They're so hungry. They're so hungry. Yes, Eric the Elder. Well, in, at the risk of, of, of tacking on to what Christy said, you know, you guys every once in a while thank us, us, the congregation, for being willing to listen to your expository preaching. And, you know... Uh, I just have to say it's it takes a lot more work to me these people that go to and I hear I hear ads on the radio for oh for to pastors oh if you can't think of what to preach you know go to this website and you know what you guys are doing is a lot more work it's what God would want of a pastor and, and so we should thank we should be thanking you guys well thank you <laughs> talking about theology Pastor Eric, what we have here in this passage we're looking at, we call a theophany. Could you explain what that is? Yeah, a, a theophany is a way in which God manifests himself. He shows himself, not the true essence, no man can see God and live, 
But he shows, um, one famous scholar says it's like his glory caboose. He shows a little bit of himself <laughs> so that people may know that this is, in fact, God. God intervenes in space and time to reveal himself. He did with, with um, Abraham. He did with Moses. Moses, the tent of meeting. Exactly, Elijah. Yeah. Yes. Um, the thing that we is so glorious about God and his person and his nature, even this glorious theophany, that stopped this violent uh, persecutor in his tracks, God revealing some of who he is, it wasn't everything or it's all what had died. No man can see God and live. So even the most glorious theophany, like Moses on Sinai, right? The disciples with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, another theophany, is God veiling his glory to some extent, even though it's way more than what we normally see as we go through life, right? And when we hear the gospel and we read these accounts, we're getting a glimpse of how great God is, how glorious he is, how powerful he is. And that's why we don't give up on people. God can save anybody. Amen. Well, let's get to another verse here. Falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Very interesting. So now Saul wants the Christians dead. And he wants to go 135 miles away to try to get some more of them. And here is a light and a sound and a theophany from heaven that stops him. And he hears Jesus Christ himself saying, why are you persecuting me? And we find from this that when Christians are attacked, Jesus Christ himself is attacked. Those Christians in Kenya who are being martyred is an attack against Jesus Christ. And I don't know if any of them can hear our, our sermons, but dear brothers and sisters in Kenya, we love you. We pray for you. Saul was attacking the God. He thought he was defending, but Jesus said that. Those that kill you will think they're doing God a favor. But now he meets the one he's attacking. Jesus identified with the ones that he sends and sent. Luke ten sixteen. Remember Luke Acts, two-volume work. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So you can't serve God the Father and reject Christ. You can't reject the God of the Bible as he has revealed himself and really be serving God. Have you ever talked to a Jesus-only Pentecostal? (laughs) They say... You have to renounce the Trinity. 
and be baptized in the name of Jesus only. And you have to speak in tongues, by the way, or you go to hell. They're not describing the God of the Bible. I don't consider that Christian. It's not Christian. Now, Luke gives a couple more accounts of this in Acts 22 and Acts 26. Now I remember when I studied Acts in Bible college, one of the concerns was to try to rectify any possible differences between the accounts as if there were somehow errors in the Bible. But now I think with people better understanding the narrative unity of Luke Acts and Luke's authorial intent, Luke was a brilliant physician who knew Greek. He could have fixed any possible contradiction if he thought there was one. But there's really no contradiction. What we do know that all the accounts tell us that this revelatory event, this theophany, was for Saul. His companions saw and heard the supernatural, but had no certain understanding like Saul did. Okay, they just said, well, that, that was something else. They weren't sure what. Now let me read Acts 9, 5, and 6. Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. He replied, but get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do, what you must do. So Saul responds to the question with another question. Who are you? Who are you? He's presented as recognizing for himself that he is involved in a theophany. But he's unsure at this point in the story as to the particular identity of the Lord, Kyrios, in the Greek. Saul's also about to be forced to conclude that this Lord is none other than Jesus. None other than Jesus. And that the title Lord usually reserved in Jewish thinking for Yahweh God may appropriately be applied to Jesus as well. Jesus is Lord. He is God, the Son, second person of the Trinity. And he wants to know who this is. Now, someone could please read Exodus 3.13. Luann. We're just seeing that when there's a theophany, sometimes a question has to be asked. Okay, Exodus 3.13. When Then Moses asked God, If I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I, shall I tell them? Yes. In verse 14, God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Amen. So Moses asked, who is this? I am. Who did Jesus claim to be? I am. 
I am. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Jesus said that if we don't come to him, we remain in darkness. Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. See, the doctrine of the Trinity is a logical implication of everything we learn in the Bible about God. And it's not some invention, as some people try to say that it is, these, these cults. Now it says, and it will be told you what you must do. Now here's a word that Eric and I talk about a lot, day. Delta Epsilon Yoda, day. This is a word that Luke uses a lot. And Luke tends to use this to imply a divine necessity. So what Paul must do is fulfill God's purpose for him as he's converted. God had a plan for Saul. Sometimes we ask, well, how do we know what that is for us? Well, short of a theophany, we know what's within our liberty as Christians, and God works through us as we just choose to do what we do. I quit a very fruitful course of study in chemical engineering and went off to a little Bible college. That's what I chose to do. I didn't see a a theophany, but that's just what I did. And uh, I don't doubt that it was right for me to go study the Bible and then preach the gospel, but it's within my liberty as a Christian to do that. Yes. Yeah, um, uh, that last point on must. uh, D-I, is that how you pronounce that? Day. Day. Now, is that, we talk about, you know, how we translate things into English. Are there other words in the New Testament that we translate as must that, that use a different Greek word? So, in other words, this is a divine necessity, that is what you're saying. Well, let me, I actually printed out some material from Kittle's Theological Dictionary on this. There's other ways this could be said, I would say that. But we want to know what Luke meant. Luke Acts, two-volume work. I've been told, you take all, remember the Greek was all run together on these scrolls? Luke and Acts would have covered the most material he could get on one scroll. Two of them, he used all the room he had. That was our Luke Acts. Luke, the great the physician, not the great physician, the converted physician whose Greek by the way is very very good according to people who know these things now I'm going to quote from Kittle's theological dictionary in the New Testament Luke and usage is important in this regard of the 102 New Testament instances 41 are in Luke and writings the usage varies Sometimes the term expresses God's will in the law, Luke eleven forty two Acts fifteen five, with which Jesus may clash as he follows the day of God's will as he himself knows it, Luke thirteen six. 
to he thus represents for Jesus a rule of light. Luke 15:32. It is the day of divine lordship which governs his work. Luke 4:42. Leads him to suffering and glory. Luke 9:22, 17:25, Acts 1:16, Acts 3:21, Acts 17:3. It is the basis of God's will laid down in Scripture. Luke 22:34. His disciples in the church stand under the same day. Where was I? Luke 12. 12, Acts 9.6, Acts 9.16, Acts 14.22. The will of this day is a saving will, so that a demand, demand is a demand for obedient faith in every situation of life. Now, Eric, as you've been teaching Romans, yeah. you've run across this word. Exactly, yeah. It's the, the name that we must be saved yeah. Um, it, There's no other name given under heaven whereby we must, must the divine necessity. be saved. And you'll see it in It person. doesn't say, well, it could be Muhammad if you want to do it that way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, go ahead. You'll, you'll see in First and Second Peter, it often used, Peter will say, I was looking for the reference, but I couldn't find it. But he'll say, um, if necessary, that you would suffer. And it's day for necessary. The idea is that you don't determine whether you suffer as a martyr for Christ. God determines whether you suffer. So it's in his providential care whether you suffer or you don't suffer. So you and I don't have to go volunteer for martyrdom. God controls it. It'll come to us if need be. So, Yes. So that's how we learn. Yes, uh, Brian. I've always had a tough time with free will. And how would you address free will versus divine necessity? I'm glad you asked. When Saul was raging violent hatred against Christians, was he doing what he freely chose to do? Yes. Yes. He was exercising his free will. He freely hated Christians and wanted them dead. Now, after this theophany, and he's taken blind and to Damascus to see what would happen, God gives a vision to Ananias, who is afraid to even go talk to this guy. Oh, no, he wants to kill us. What did the Lord say? Oh, he's one of mine. Right? Go talk. I, I was just working on that for next week if we get to it. See, God doesn't force us to go try to do something against our will. He changes us from the inside out. So Saul, after he's converted, he's in Damascus. One of the first things he ends up doing is preaching Christ. That's what he will to do. So people get the wrong idea when they think, God is doing violence to our will. No, he changes us. And as we're changed, we want different things. That's what happened to me. My big dream in life was to be a chemical engineer and to do really, really good. And once I was converted, I don't know why, but I wanted to go preach the Bible. And I remember I found my dad down in Des Moines at a conference to ask for permission for what I wanted to do. 
It just happened to be that he was 30 miles from where I was in Ames, Iowa. And I took a big risk by skipping class. One day out of class is a big problem when you're an engineering student. Drove down to Ames and here's my dad in his hotel. And told him what, he, what I wanted to do. And he thought I should finish engineering and get a degree and then go to Methodist Seminary. And I said, I, Dad, I just, these people are the ones that taught me what I believe now. I feel like I got to go to their Bible college. And, and he said, listen, you're a capable person. If you go there, it doesn't work out. You can come back here, re-enroll, and get your engineering degree. I give you my blessing. I went from Ames to Minneapolis, and I've never left here. But um, what changed? My will to be an engineer changed. But that's just God working on the inside. I could just as easily still will to be an engineer as a Christian. That wouldn't have been a bad thing. wouldn't be sinful. And my dad could have said, listen, I'm paying for engineering. You better not go to that Bible college. You need to stay right here. He could have said that. I don't know what I would have done. But as it was... My dad meant the whole world to me, and having his blessing was unbelievably good. It really comforted me. And then I decided I'm going to go up there and do a good job and not fail to show that I'm serious about this. So for you, make your decision. If it's inside of God's moral will, he is working. Good question, Brian. Great question. Free coffee. I already had mine. Uh, can I have another? You can have another. Let's, cl- let's close in prayer. We're on verse 6. Okay. Dear Lord, thank you for the, allowing us to look into these things for the joy of seeing what you d- do and how you work. Help us to serve you with joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.